So if, was anybody here last week? Anybody here for like the 4th of July outdoor services? Outdoor services? Anybody? Yes, yes, yes. I see you. Yes. Didn't Vit and Ken Huff do such a good job? I was so, so stoked. Um, they continued this conversation, Songs of the Soul, and today we're going through Psalm 121. Psalm 121, if you've got your Bible, uh, I brought mine because I marked it up and I want to give you some of the cues and some of the clues that I had marked up in my Bible as I prepared for this morning's talk. Um, some background on Psalm 121. It is written, people think it's written by David, but we don't have any like full guaranteed assurance. But if we, if we assume that it's written by David, it's interesting who we know historically has utilized this psalm or this song or this poem uh, for particular things in their lives. It's, a, it's been historically noted as a war psalm. That's pretty interesting. It's like if you know you're going into a great battle or if you're going to be facing a great challenge, if there's something that you're going to be going through in the near future that has an uncertain outcome, this has historically been a psalm, Psalm 121, uh, that uh, armies have used and they've like, they've, they've set it together historically. It's a psalm that David utilized. Uh, we know as he was going through some very difficult challenges in his own life, some authors think that he wrote it when he was at the greatest conflict with his son. Very interesting. There was like a, there was a kingdom battle. If you know the, the, the historical figure of David, he had very successful sons, but they also, because of their success and their stubbornness, they had a huge amount of family like strife. Like if you think you have family drama, uh, David's kids tried to like overthrow him and like murder. They, they, it was crazy. The Bible is like first and second Kings, first and second, second Samuel. It reads like the movie Braveheart but it's biblical, so it's awesome. You're just like, what? This happened? Swords and stuff. Um, it was utilized then. And then it's also a psalm that we know in recent history was utilized by a lot of missionaries, uh, groups of people or individuals who had gone into an unknown territory where they were calling on God's protection over their life. Uh, we have these great historical documents from people who have written in recent history where this was their prayer. Psalm 121 was the banner that they held up as they went on and into uh, unknown places. And so to me, unpacking this, there's so much for us to have and to hold because we know God's promises aren't just for those who were thinking about them as they were writing, but they're held up like great music that we have. They, they meet us in a moment in our lives. They meet us in these scenarios and they help provide a language and um, kind of guard and guide rails for us as we go through really challenging things in life. So here's what I wanna ask you. Have you ever, as we start uh, Psalm 121, have you ever found yourself uh, in wonder around things that have great magnitude. Let me say that again, right? Have you ever found yourself in wonder of things either by nature, natural things uh, that have great magnitude? When you kind of measure yourself up against it, you realize, wow, I am a speck in comparison to these things. Or are there people in your lives who when you compare yourself to them, you're like, this is a hero. This, is, this person is larger than life. This thought about something that is 
magnitudally, that's not a word, but by magnitude greater than us is where Psalm 121 kind of starts. And so I, I thought as I was preparing for this sermon, there are some things that I saw recently that reminded me of the magnitude of creation and then how I am so small in comparison to it. Uh, the first is uh, the Pacific Ocean, just the coastline of the Pacific. If you ever spend any time uh, near and at the beach, I pulled this, fo- this photo. This is the um, Baja Peninsula. This is not California in 500 years uh, when like global warming puts um, like the sequoias into the ocean. That's not this. Uh, this is the Baja Peninsula. And I was driving down. I visited my folks this weekend, Thursday night, Friday night, we were in Mexico and just driving that coastline, the vastness of the ocean is always something that really leaves me speechless, especially when you leave San Diego, this ocean, and then you're driving all along the coast and you realize there's the same body of water. It's so overwhelming when you kind of let it like kind of simmer. For a lot of folks, the ocean is a place that you go to when you need a sense of calibration. Am I right? There's like a sense of peace, a sense of um, just awe and wonder. For many of us, we go towards the sea when we need a little bit of clarity. Am I right? Um, It's one of those magnitude entities in our world created by God. Uh, There's another one that is special to me, and it was uh, a lot, it was very, 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 Um, relevant when I was in my 20s. I spent a lot of time up in the Sequoia National Forest. And this is a picture of some of the giant sequoias uh, that you can find in the Sequoia National Forest. If you drive up the the five, you catch uh, the 99. It'll take you kind of inland a little bit. And then the 180 will take you right into Kings Canyon, the Sequoia National Forest. This is a literal photo. And while the Jeep is kind of a little bit of ways, these trees are mind-blowing how large are the some of the largest living organisms on the planet and when you get in proximity to one of them you just you're you're shook your 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 mind has a hard time wrapping around literally this idea that God has made these massive entities the magnitude of the trees is Uh, something to wonder at. But then you zoom out, uh, which is the next photo. This is the King's Canyon in the next photo. And the King's Canyon is where all of these giant sequoias um, are growing. So in these groves are those giant sequoias, the largest trees. Then you have the canyon that kind of encompasses both sides of them. The The East Canyon is really the most breathtaking part of the King's Canyon. It's just this massive expanse. It's greater and deeper and wider and more significant in breadth than even the Grand Canyon. Most people don't know that. little science fact for you. Um, All of these things are these great wonders that oftentimes people who don't have a relationship with God or don't have clarity that there is a God to have a relationship with Oftentimes, we know people who will gravitate towards nature to find this sense of peace and the sense of fulfillment and the sense of completion, that they're in like this greater life cycle. And they oftentimes prop up these great magnitude type things, sometimes people, as a way of finding rest and peace and stability. But Psalms 121 is going to help us zoom out even more. But before we get to that, I want to 
maybe for the first time ever, give you a, a piece of information that is a magnitude-type experience that we have in San Diego. If you ever have friends that come to town, you can give them this. Are you guys familiar with our very own Claremont-based seventh wonder of the world, the 619 Monster Burrito that comes out of Los Primos? Anybody? Anybody been there? Okay, you're shaking your head no. Look at the size of this burrito by comparison. That is... You can order, that's an over-the-counter opportunity that you can go to seven days a week. Uh, it's the size of a grown man's forearm. That is, that, if God isn't real based on that evidence alone. Uh, th this is actually, Los Primos is trying to get people to heaven faster than their natural birth time by this burrito being on the market. Uh, but here's... Here's what I mean by all of these magnitude-based things. Oftentimes, us in our humanity, we go towards things that are much larger than us when we're looking for stability. That's a, na it's a natural inclination of ours. Psalm 121 is going to put, and it's going to right-size for us, the magnitude of the person of who God is. And then it's going to give us a pathway of how you play a particular part in that stack and how I play a particular part in that stack. And it's going to give us, I think, a couple of great handles. If you're going through something challenging, if you are facing something that seems like it's got an unknown outcome, Psalm 121 is a great chapter and a great grouping of verses to have, to write down, and to be reminded of. So I'm going to encourage you, take your phone out. If you've got a Bible with you, get ready to scribble some notes down because we're going to get into it here. I'm going to read it for us, uh, and then we're going to unpack it. We're going to slice it up. It says this, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life, a.k.a. soul. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Psalm 121. That's the New International Version that I just read. My Bible is the English Standard Version, ESV. Um, did... In reading that, was there any particular word that stood out to you that it was repetitive over and over and over again? Anybody? 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 The word keep. Yes, the word keep pops out. It's actually written six times in the eight verses. And I'll tell you this, anytime you're reading your Bible, anytime the author, anytime you see something that is a rep repetitive word or repetitive phrase, the author is trying to bring that to your attention. It's like clues as to what the most important thing is in the grouping of verses that you're reading. In this one, it says, the Lord keeps, he keeps, he'll keep, he keeps, 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 keeps. And if you keep saying keeps, it doesn't make any sense after you hear the word keeps so many times. But the author wants you to understand this very, very specific word, as it pertains to the definition of who God is in his life, the author, and what he's saying he can be in yours and my life, the readers or the consumers. The word keep, uh, if you're writing this down, the Hebrew word is the word shamar. Shamar. Anybody want to say it with me? It feels really good. Shamar. You have to move, move your shoulders. If you actually move your shoulders, it's more authentic uh, to the psalm. So you say 
shamar. And that word, it means a few very particular things. It means to guard. It means, I love this combination, to watch and to ward. Not toward, but to ward. It's like to ward things off. It means to protect. Uh, and it also means to just blatantly save life. It means to save life. This is what we get in the word keep. And then it's got an action. It's an, it's an actionable word as it says keeps. So if you understand the definition of that word, shamar, then you'll be able to actually apply and plug it into all of these promises that God gives us through Psalm 121. And I'm going to I'm going to try to walk you through them because they're so applicable, I think, in this moment in our lives. So uh, the first, as we read it, is um, we're going to answer this question, how does God really keep us? It says, I lift my eyes up to the hills. From where does my help come from? Then he answers the question, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. There's another translation that says, I look to the mountains, and as I'm looking to the mountains, Where in the world is my help going to come from? And a lot of people actually translate this as the mountain out there. Ain't no mountain high enough. They think that that is a far and away difficult, hard, there's no way I can scale that problem in my life. This is the wrong way to interpret this verse. The proper way to interpret this verse, as the author writes it, he says, I lift my eyes up to the hills. He's saying, I see hills and I see something of great magnitude that to me says there's some stability to be had in that great physical feature. Then he asked the question, but, but where does my help come from? I know there's a lot of people that look to physical things. There's a lot of people that look to created things as their stabilizer, as their safety. And in the first century, whenever this is actually written way before Jesus's time, this has been much, much, much sooner, um, Instead of running to a castle for safety, we know that David, when he was fleeing for his life, he ran into the wilderness and he hid and he found himself in caves. So this particular uh, psalm is saying, I look up to, I look up to the hills because that's a place where I find safety. There's a magnitude there that I believe keeps me safe. And the author is saying, you know what's even more amazing than the hills and what's more amazing than the mountains? The mountain maker the maker of the mountains. And he actually details it here. He goes, where does my help come from? Even though I see these stable, amazing mountains, this vast ocean, that crazy 619 burrito. He says, none of those things bring me joy or safety or security. Where does my personal help come from? He answers it. My help actually comes from the Lord. And then he qualifies it. The maker of heavens and earth. If you read the, um, the message version by Eugene Peterson, Eugene Peterson wrote the message so that he can kind of write the Bible when they say like in memes, like explain it to me like I'm a five-year-old. Essentially, that's what Eugene Peterson did for his kids. And Eugene Peterson writes, I lift my eyes up. He says, I look up to the mountains do the, do the mountains give me security? And then he answers the question, no, they don't, because God who made heaven and earth and the mountains is the one who brings me security. It's an awesome right-sizer for us. Maybe there are things in your life that you consistently have ran to. Maybe your, your family is the great stabilizer. Maybe you run from your family for great stabilization. Uh, For some of us, it's a place, it's a secret place, it's a consistent uh, place that we go to to kind of level and find uh, a place to breathe and to be calm. God is saying, 
through, or the author is pointing back to God through this psalm, and he's actually saying, I love that you have a place. Don't miss the placemaker in this. Not pacemaker, placemaker. Don't miss, in search of a miracle, the miracle worker. In search of provision, don't miss the provider. That's what the psalmist is writing for us. Wow, I look up to the heavens. I love it because the language, it actually translates, and there are very few times this works for us in our modern day and culture. When somebody asks you, who do you look up to? You probably can name something, a historical figure, uh, somebody who made a great impact on your life, somebody living today who is uh, somebody who's firm and like they're, they're calm and they're stable and they've been kind of a, a, a shade and, a, and a, a monumental person in your life. This author is saying, who do you look up to? When I look up to somebody, I see the mountains, but that's not who I'm looking to for stability. I'm looking to God. And then he's going to unpack how he stabilizes in the, in the verses to follow. He says, he, God, will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. There are two particular descriptions being uh, declared here. Can you see them? One is very singular in definition. He will not let who? Your foot. He will not let the reader the reader's foot. Are we reading this today? Yes. So could you say the Lord will not let your foot be moved? Yes. In another translation, it says he will not let you stumble. He will not let you fall. He says the way that he does that is because he does not, he who keeps you, protects you, saves you, will not slumber. The author's making a, a contrast here. He's saying you likely have found yourself slipping or falling or making errors in life, doing things you don't like or things you're not proud of because you have found yourself spiritually tired in certain seasons. And then you find yourself in areas and ways and places that you're not proud of, things that you regret that you've done. Maybe you had a sense of spiritual sleep that you weren't aware of these things that you were doing. And the Bible says that God, even though you and your humanity have been there, that God keeps you despite your tripping up in life, and it says that him in his great keeping, in his protection, that he never sleeps. He never slumbers. He never tires. You could understand it as he never gets tired of actually your tripping up. He never gets tired of you making the same cyclical mistakes every time uh, like that problem comes back and shows its ugly face. The beauty in God who keeps is that God is somebody who with great patience exercises this protection over you as you mature and make your way in your relationship with him. He says, I know in your humanity that you will slip, but guess what? Me and my divinity, I never misstep. I'm never tired. I'm never tired of you. I'm never tired of the problems. I'm always here and I'm always 100% alert for it. There may be some of us who are going through a season when we've actually wondered, man, does God even see this? Is God even aware that this is happening in my life? And Psalm 121 would suggest to you with great specificity, he is very aware that he is never nodding off on the important things in your life. 
That's singular in nature. That's the first part of this. The second part of this, it says, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. So he takes something very specific and then he zooms it out and he says, you know how powerful God is? He not only understands what you're going through and he never sleeps over it, but he can manage all of the turmoil that an entire nation will go through and even that won't tire my God out. So it makes me wonder, it makes me think, who in your family are you burdened for that you go, God, I really just, please don't forget. Please, please don't leave this person out. Lord, please extend your grace to, please show them that you're there. Whoever it is that you're burdened for, God in his graciousness through this author is being declared as somebody who can manage all of your chaos, your hot mess express, and then all of the rest of the nation of believers, all the other Jesus people, and he says that he doesn't lose a wink of sleep over it. That he's so, he's so present in it that we can have a confidence that nothing goes past his attention or past his uh, perspective. This is in direct, sharp opposition to the movie Bruce Almighty. Anybody? Bruce Almighty? Yes, to the people in the room. Bruce Almighty, by way of Jim Carrey, is a character that is so frustrated at God that he asked God if he can be God. And then God says, by Morgan Freeman, the best probably version of God I've ever seen depicted in film. Um, Morgan Freeman's like, sure, let's go for it. And then he gives Jim Carrey, who is now acting through the power of God, the portal by which he's gonna receive every person's prayer request. Do you remember this? And it's through a computer. And so Jim Carrey, excited for the day, acting in all of God's power, opens the computer and it's like five bajillion emails of people's prayer requests. Like my cat is missing and my mom is dying and I'm hungry and I don't like what uh, my rent is being jacked up to in this hyperinflated economy. He's like getting all of those emails and he's like trying to respond and then all of a sudden he's just like select all yes and then everybody gets yes to their prayer requests and then what happens it fills right back up like as soon as he's done filling and he goes back to Morgan Freeman and he's like I'm exhausted over this I'm so thankful that you are not God I'm pointing to you Mike uh, I'm so thankful that I'm not God because I don't have the capacity to manage all of the pain that humanity is going through in this moment. But I love what Psalms 121 says. It says, he knows your pain and he's not sleeping on it. And he knows the pain of the world and he's not sleeping on that either. It's such a good promise for us to have and to hold. It's singular, but then it's also communal. It's for you, but it's also for all of us. He continues on and he says, the Lord is your keeper. That's that key word again. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. Uh, let's go to the next verse. It says, um, yes, yes, yes. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. And then I wrote in parentheses, soul. Uh, because in, the, in a couple of other translations, the word life is exchanged for soul. Take me back to the last slide. An interesting way of describing who God is. It says, the Lord is your shade on your right hand. God does not care if you get sunburned. This is a much deeper definition there. Although you shouldn't burn, you should wear sunscreen. When 
Scripture says the Lord is your shade on your right hand. It's actually speaking to the right hand in the Old Testament would have been the symbol of strength and the symbol of work, the symbol of, of diligence and the ability to create and the ability to provide for your family, for yourself, for your community. So it's got this really amazing nuance that the Lord as your keeper understands that you're doing right by working, by being engaged, by following your passions, by running your business well. And he says he's not going to leave you high and dry when that gets challenging. He says the Lord as your keeper is going to be your shade on your right hand as you work towards achieving whatever goals you have set in front of you, whatever you endeavor towards, whatever you're passionate about, whatever you're purposed for in your life. It says the Lord keeps you as you move towards those things. Do you want to be fantastic grandparents? The Lord is with you as you endeavor towards that. Are you looking to make progressive changes in your business? Are you looking to bounce back? Are you looking to find a career and nail it and be fantastic at it? It says the Lord covers your due diligence in his keeping. It's an awesome, awesome phrase. It's, it's poetic in nature. And here's what I wrote in my Bible. I wrote that when he says that he provides shade over your right hand, he's speaking to giving you relief for energy. He's speaking about giving you rest for your soul. And he's speaking about um, giving you a replenishment as you pour yourself out towards the things that you're passionate about. Rest, relief, and replenishment. That's very pastoral of me. Four, three R's. When you are moving towards the thing that you're passionate about and you submit it to God, you right-size it in the scope of who God is, the Lord says that when you are moving in that direction, that he covers you in a way that gives you a refueling as you are moving towards that which he made you for. It's awesome. If you ever think, man, I'm going to take this big leap and it's, I don't know if I'm going to make it. I'm not sure if we're going to get to the other side. I'm not sure if this is going to succeed. Here's what I want to tell you. I tell my teams this very often, person to person when people tell me, Mingo, I feel like God's calling me to go and take this big step to move to this city, to complete my degree, to, to step in and change fields or to, to be to, to brave homeschool. I'm like, God be with us. Um, when people tell me that, I tell people, don't measure your success on the outcome. Measure your success in your response to saying yes to God's calling in your life. We say this all the time with ministry efforts here at the church. If we relaunched dinner service midweek and nobody came, I would applaud it with great success. Not because I have a bunch of leftovers, but because... We said yes to the inclination that God was saying, create a midweek service where people can come and be connected. I would rather be hailed as somebody who said yes to God's prompting than somebody who said yes and it blew up to be a great thing. Sometimes we measure the outcome and we miss the fact that we're being faithful in our yes. This verse, the Lord shading your right hand is him providing a refueling of your soul as you courageously say yes to the things you don't know the answers to. He continues, and he says, the sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He'll keep your life. He'll keep your soul. This is an interesting one. We know uh, the sun shall not strike you by day 
If you dig into this at face value, it doesn't make sense because you go, okay, this makes sense. The sun can totally deplete a human being if they're out in the desert, no water, no, no hydration. You will be dead in a matter of hours. But it didn't make sense to me as I first read this, nor the moon by night. Like, I don't know. I know a lot of white people, but I don't know white people so white that they get moon burnt. That's not like a thing. So you go digging in history. You're asking the question, what does this mean, by day or by night? There's another scripture or another translation that says, you won't be affected by sunstroke or by moonstroke. Even more, like, interesting. So I go digging in history. And there's this interesting correlation that Theologians believe that when he says that the sun shall not strike you by day, he's talking about physical ailment, that you'll be protected physically, that if you endeavor or go through hard things and you wonder if God is there to protect you physically, that he does. But the idea of him protecting you by, by moon, by night, is actually a reference to your mental health. It's a reference to your mental stability. If you spend any time looking through like, like circadian rhythms and stuff like that as it relates to the cycle of the moon, everybody who's like into this, they know that like there are some interesting synapses that fire on the cycles of the moon. The tide moves with the moon and so do people's kind of mental clarity. If you talk to somebody who works in the like as a nurse or as a doctor or as a practitioner, they'll always say, hey, we know when like the moon is in like its fullest form because we're always like dishing out extra meds to the people that need it most, right? There's kind of like this weird flux. And when you think through the poetry of this, a lot of theologians would say that they're talking through the physical protection, which would be represented in the sun, and then your mental protection, talking about being protected by the moon by night. And oftentimes writers, even in today's culture, they'll say, like, as I go through the long night, that's not a physical endurance. That's always a mental endurance. And so it's awesome how the writer of this psalm is saying, the Lord protects you. He keeps you by day. He keeps you by night. He says he'll protect you from all evil that kind of banners over what plagues you physically and what plagues you mentally. And he says he'll preserve you all the way to the core of your soul, the very end, that he will keep your life. I love it. We already know that God is a protector, mind, body, and spirit. But I love out of this psalm, the illustration that if you don't see the physical ailments of what's happening when the sun is, is at you, then you feel them in your mental state of clarity, your mental state of health. And the Lord sees and keeps you there also, so much so that it goes to your soul. He finishes and he says, um, the Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. There's two parts of this. And then I'm going to give you three things to think through. The Lord keep you from going out. These, this is a statement that you can wrap around the idea that there are things in your world right now that you are about to embark on. There are stu there's stuff that you have been planning for and you've been preparing for and you're about to leave for those things. You're about to start a new chapter. You're about to start writing some new some new verses when it comes to how you're living your life. And the Bible is telling us the Lord's going to keep you and you're going out in pursuit of those things. There are some of us who have understood with our time away, some of us in 
figurative nature, our time away from the Lord, our time away from the Lord's promises, that there is a coming back that you are experiencing, a returning back to God's goodness. And the Bible says he keeps you on your way back. I think of the prodigal son parable that the Lord protected and provided. And he illustrated a father that runs towards a kid who doesn't know what to say as he humbly returns back to a God that he knows that he has not done right by. It's built in the illustration of a father. And the Bible says the Lord actually keeps you on those courageous going outs and on those humbly coming ins. He keeps you, he protects you, he wards for you. And then the statement, from this time forth, I circled it in my Bible, and parentheses circled forevermore. It's a promise delivered for where you're at right now. What are you going through? What are the challenges? What are the things that you know are uncertain that you're facing, that you need a declaration of stability and security? And maybe for you, you've been running to the ocean wondering if it can help you pay rent. It can't. Maybe you're the person that runs to the mountains hoping that in the vastness of all creation that somehow you'll get this supernatural download. And I promise you won't. Or you go to the 619 burrito hoping that you'll just delay satisfaction for another day, probably more like two because it's so big. But you will not be satisfied in any of these without God as the, as the baseline for how you see and approach all of those things, even that 619 burrito. How is God the ultimate standard for you? How is God the, the baseline for you as you look at the insurmountable things in your life? Here's the three things, and then I'm gonna bring the band up. Really simply this. Here's what you and I can do. First, we can identify your mountain. What are the things that you look to for great stability? That is the question here. What is the magnitude moment or what is the, the magnitude player in your life that maybe is not God? Can you identify it with great clarity? When this happens in my life, I run to this thing. I wrote some down in my own life. Uh, the magnitude moments for me, they are um, financial stability, sleep, because I think it, it makes me more clear, status, because of what other people will think about me. Position, because it proves that I've done my due diligence, I paid my dues, and now I have this position. Uh, praise, because it makes me feel something about myself. Or uh, possession, what I have, what I've accumulated, because it shows other people that I'm a good steward of whatever it is that I've come across in my life. These are all mountains that I have to deal with in my life. Remember, mountains aren't the struggles. Mountains are the things that you hold as chiefly powerful in your life. These are the most stable things in your life. And the writer says, I love that you've got some stable things. I've got the most stable thing. You have a stable thing. I have the stable thing. So identify your mountain. Number two, clarify how to prioritize it. Clarify how to prioritize it. I wrote in my notes, put it in its right place under God's authority and under God's priority. Let me say this phrase again. Do not lose the miracle maker while you are looking for your miracle. Are you looking for an out for your job? Are you looking for reconciliation in a relationship? Are you praying that God saves your children? All of those things are good. Don't miss the miracle maker in the miracle you're looking for. You can hear it a different way. Don't get consumed by the possession or the provision and miss the provider himself. 
I want to give my kids everything that I can provide for them, but what I don't want is my kids to obsess over the things that I provide and miss the relationship with me. I don't want that to be the case. I don't want them to be so consumed by all the things I provide that they miss the relationship with me, their dad. Let's not do that with God as we ask for and we look to whatever provisions we hope for in our lives. Clarify how to prioritize the mountains that you've got. And then thirdly, remember God's help. And then I wrote this, God plays for keeps. God plays for keeps. We heard it over and over and over in this psalm. I'm going to read you some lyrics of a song. I'm going to bring the band up because I'm going to read it as if it is a worship song. And then you tell me if you know who this song is written by, okay? God plays for keeps. I walk these streets. Anybody know the song? A loaded six string on my back. You know, John Bon Jovi says, I play for keeps. He says, I walk these streets, a loaded six string on my back. I play for keeps because I might not make it back. Is that a song? Okay, so he says, I've been everywhere. Still, I'm standing tall. I've seen a million phases. I've, I've seen a million faces and I've rocked them all. I'd love to think that if John Bon Jovi was a believer, he'd be like, I've seen a million hectic, crazy things in my life, and God has rocked every single one of them in my life. Here's my question to you. How awesome is John Bon Jovi? That's not my question. <laughs> if you hear that song, I want you to think of Psalm 121. That'll be awesome. What are the things that you hold to for stable, for stability? Is it a spouse? Is it a, is it a thing? Is it, is it an inanimate object, or is it something that is finite? Can you put it in its right place? Is God asking you to put it in its right place? And then in that, can you see God as being a keeper that he keeps and that he sees you specifically when he's thinking about that provision, that providing, that saving life, that hedging and protecting? That's for you. Sometimes we read this and we think it's out there for somebody else. It's for you. It's for me. If you're a reader of this, it's for you. They're pointing at a God that is generation to generation, the Savior for anybody with a beating heart in their chest. So it's my promise to hold and it's yours to hold. How good is the great news that Jesus is for you and that he is that powerful and he's that stable. Let me pray for us and then we'll sing together. Jesus, thank you for Psalm 121. Thank you that the promise is not just here and now that we get to experience your provision, but forevermore. Lord, thank you that you, pray, you play for keeps. Thank you that you are never not watching, that you're never tired of us as we make our way tripping and stumbling towards you in a humble effort through our humanity. Lord, would we... Would we have confidence in that, Lord, when we sing about how great you are? Would we really, truly, would we peel ourselves open and would we invite you into those tender spaces to, to lead us and to, to minister to us, to hold us as, Lord, we walk the life that you put out in front of us? We love you so much, Lord. Thank you for today. In your name I pray, amen. Would you guys stand and sing this last song with us?